This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you're listening to Money Management. We're here every Saturday morning at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy, and hopefully to provide you some insights into all that's going on out there and uh, help you make some good informed decisions. Now, this week was rather interesting. I think we can agree, Jeepers. It started out, all oh, happy days are here again. And then in the middle of the week, uh, the traders were, well, chasing their own tails, to be polite. And net-net, uh, we ended up uh, just slightly better than we were a week ago, believe it or not. Uh, the Dow closed at 31,496. The S&P last traded at 3841. The NASDAQ uh, was lower week over week at ended at 12,920. The Russell 2000, the small cap index, it was at 2192. We had uh, gold dropping about $30 an ounce week over week. It's at 16.95 an ounce. Silver about unchanged at 25.16 an ounce. Crude up about $4 a barrel in the last week. It's at 65.70. 10-year treasury bid at 1.56 percent. And soft white wheat uh, was bid at 7.45 a bushel. So it wasn't it wasn't just where they closed yesterday because it, you you had to wear a neck brace if you followed this thing the whole day yesterday. The uh, S and P was up 1.9, but it was down 1% early. Uh, and again, the Dow up 1.9, but it was over about as much lower on a percentage basis, 150 points early on. The NASDAQ wound up being up 1.5%, uh, but it ha- was down 2.6% at one point. So something for everybody. Uh, what changed? Well, this is almost too silly to believe, but uh, bond yields dropped off a little bit from their session high. The 10-year Treasury, uh, which ended at 1.56%, had traded up to 1.6%. Now, that's four basis points which is four one-hundredths of 1%. And that's a new high for the year at 1.6. And that was due to the job growth data, which I'll talk about in a little while. Quincy Crosby, who is uh, the chief market strategist at Prudential Financial, um, she says, as the techs were moving into correction territory, uh, by most measures, the tech sell-off had reached oversold levels and were due for investors and traders to begin buying. Well, they didn't exactly all begin buying today, or excuse me, Friday, because Tesla was off 4%. It's down 12% for the week. And uh, flipping things around, Peloton and Zoom, which have done well in the uh, virus-related lockdown, dropped uh, 19 and 14% for the week. So that's where the weakness in the NASDAQ is coming. Now, uh, Monday, as I was saying, less than 40 stocks in the S&P had losses. That was a great way to start the month, and advances were out outnumbered declines four to one. Um, now the uh, on let's see what was it uh, Wednesday, the ten year Treasury moved and that was relative to where it was before up to one point four seven percent, causing a drop that day Wednesday of two point seven percent in the Nasdaq, and that was the second worst performance of the year. Now, again, six basis points is six one-hundredths of a percent. This 
kind of strikes me as the mouse that roared. But um, and then Thursday, same thing. Uh, people were dumping the high flying texts about because they're concerned about interest rates. Uh, and for the first time in six months, uh, the S and P had back to back losses of more than one percent, which of course was pretty much obviated by Friday's almost two percent gain. So those day to day things, once again. It's more just background noise than something to uh, make some trading decisions on. Uh, and so you're seeing the NASDAQ 100, which is heavy in the tech stocks, being hit relatively much more than the Dow, which has fewer companies expecting big growth. Now, on Wednesday, uh, Mr. Uh, throw Water on the Party, uh, a.k.a. Jerome Powell, head of the uh, Federal Reserve, he said, uh, I would be concerned by disorderly conditions in markets or persistent tightening in financial conditions that threatens the achievement of our goals, un unquote. Now, in American, what he said was rising long-term bond rates could keep the economy from returning to uh, the previous activity levels. Now, he did acknowledge that an economy recuperating from the pandemic could see some price pressures ahead. But he also dismissed them as mainly what the he called base effects. In other words, prices in the next couple of months will look high, but only when compared to last year, which because they hadn't done anything. And so just as the the pandemic was beginning and, infl and inflation pressures, well, were pretty much non-existent. Now, what he also added, Mr. Powell, he said in addition to the indications of full employment, they want to see inflation sustainably above 2%, and we want to be on track for inflation to run sustainably above that level. He said there's just a lot of ground to cover before we get to that. And so by way of uh, a little more backup, let me uh, share with you a few of these economic reports that came out this week because, again, the economy is continuing pretty dang strong. Uh the oil prices, they were up 2% Wednesday, another 4% Thursday, and then 3% on Friday. So highest levels in over a year because OPEC and his buddies agreed not to increase the crude supply in April. They want to wait for more substantial recovery in demand. But this is the highest price for crude since April of 2019. So, uh, you know, our friendly gas station folks are wasting no time raising those numbers at the pump. Now, the, the fundamentals of the oil market do suggest further strength because as oil demand grows with the recovery and leisure and travel activity is also likely to bounce up. So all of that could add to inflation pressures. Personal income up 10% in January. That's pretty dang good. How People are hoarding cash. There's almost $3 trillion in extra savings uh, socked away during the lockdowns in the world's largest economies. That's from Bloomberg Economics. And, um, oh, yeah, the jobs, that's what helped the market on Friday. We added 379,000 jobs with the unemployment rate dropping down to 6.2%. That was way better than what was anticipated in terms of uh, the jobs numbers. Morgan Stanley only expected a gain of 60,000. Bank America said 225 with the consensus around 180. So, once again, the tea leaf readers aren't very good at, uh, how would I say, figuring out just exactly how strong the market is. And one last uh, thing for the uh, economic reports, the manufacturing index uh, for, what was it, F February, that's the most recent data, matched its highest reading in more than 16 years. Things are going well, as I said. This is not smoke and mirrors. New orders, production, employment, all higher. 
And now the factories say they're running against supply chain and labor constraints. Well, until uh, the politicians let people start working again, that's going to continue. But we do expect continued growth in the manufacturing sector as we do get back to whatever passes for normal. So, let me spend some time on uh, interest rates. I'm going to talk about bonds and inflation and uh, also, well, just market outlook and things like that. But these are the things that uh, I believe are driving the marketplace right now. And this this past week on CNBC, I saw this headline. These guys are great for putting out headlines that don't mean a lot. Uh, they said, S&P 500 falls as bond yields jump once again. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> it's a knee jerk is what it is. And... The reason for the current rise in rates is likely due to the bond market pricing in higher economic growth prospects. I mean, you know, that's the reality. When you see these economic reports and things, you got to say, hmm, there's some cred behind that. Now, bond market is not all-knowing by any stretch, but that's what it's telling us. So feel free to listen to it or not. Peter Bookvar, he's chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group. He had this to say, stock investors are still looking at the rise in rates mostly as a good thing, not yet as a threat, notwithstanding some shaking of the tree in high multiple stocks and other parts of the market last week, unquote. So what happens to mar the market when the uh, uh, rates go up by 1% or more? Well, I think I'll have to wait till after the break to get into the details, but I'll give you a little context for that. And again, by way of uh, previews of coming attractions, uh, talking in much more detail about bonds, uh, it won't be positive. Uh, <laughs> and I'll have facts for it. It's not just because it's Saturday that I'm saying this stuff. So, by way of background, from 1954 to 1960, the 10-year Treasury, which is the base interest uh, instrument for pretty much the whole economy. That's why people focus on the, the numbers so much. In any regard, uh, the return, the rate went from 2.3% to 4.7%, more than doubling, and that's over 16 years. Now, in that time, the S&P was up 207% or 17.4% annualized. From 71 to 81, oh, Lordy, it wasn't so much fun. Rates went straight up. They went from 6.2 to, yep, 13.7%. Now, before you say, ooh, I want some of those, this same period included double-digit inflation, uh, double and, and tax rates of 70% or more. We also had a crash in 73 and 74 that nobody talks about that was pretty brutal. It was down about 40 or 50%. And... Uh, but nominal returns were still pretty decent uh, at 7.1% annualized from 71 to 81. So from 93 to 94, we had kind of like a hiccup in the markets in the 90s there. Rates shot up from 66 to 8%, but the S&P was sterly, hello, still up nearly 12% in total return. That's dividends plus growth, despite uh, some, uh, how we say, carnage in the bond market that year. Now, at the tail end of the dot-com, well, rates were up. They went from 5.5 and 98 to 6.5 and 99. Didn't matter, though. Stocks were up more than 55%. But, oops, that was followed by a mere 50% crash beginning in early 2000. Some of you may remember that. 
Now from 2003 to 07, rates went from 3.3 to 5.1, and the S&P went up 90, excuse me, 83%, which is 12.8%. So you get the idea. Could rising rates lead to a stock market crash? Well, yeah, sure, it's possible, but not at these levels. And do we know at what level rates would potentially cause a crash? Not the least idea. And should the stock market care if interest rates are rising for the right reason? Well, stay tuned. I guess we're going to find out. But the problem with the current rate environment is we've never experienced interest rates this low before. So maybe investors will become spooked at lower rates than they have in the past because, quite frankly, for the most part, most investors have no idea how to operate in a rising interest rate environment. We haven't had that in almost 40 years, so that would X out a few folks that are out there investing right now. So maybe the markets will be given the benefit of the doubt if the economy's chugging along, but the truth is there's no rule of thumb with this stuff. But rising rates all by themselves don't automatically spell doom for the stock market. Now, Goldman Sachs, you know Goldman, they insist that while rates indeed have risen recently, they are not flashing danger signals. David Costin, who is their chief U.S. equities strategist, said, Investors ask whether the level of rates is becoming a threat to stock valuations. Our answer is an emphatic no. No. That's what he said, no. Costin notes that uh, investors should view the trend as more of a shift than a danger. He said, in this environment, he said, investors should recognize that different sectors will benefit. In his opinion, cyclical stocks with weaker earnings but stronger growth profiles will win over defensive plays that did well during the pandemic. So areas such as energy and industrials tend to perform better when rates rise. Well, so do financials. But unsurprisingly, he went on, he was pretty windy here, you know, these cyclical stocks have been positively correlated with both nominal and real interest rates. So, in contrast, the ultra-long duration stocks, read that as high-tech issues, have been negatively correlated with interest rates, meaning they go the opposite direction, because they generate no earnings today and their valuations depend entirely on their future growth prospects. In their opinion, again, they're talking Goldman Sachs, rates won't pose a significant danger to stocks until the rate gets up to 2.1% on the 10-year. Why 2.1? I have no idea, but that's what he says. For now, he added, the environment of rising yields along with growth is consistent with Goldman's uh, price target of 4300 on the S&P for 2021. So that would definitely be above where we were yesterday. Uh, And he said, looking forward, investors must balance the appeal of promising businesses with the risk that rates rise further and the recent rotation continues. He concluded, uh, although secular growth stocks may remain the most appealing investments on a long-term horizon, those stocks will underperform more cyclical firms in the short term if the economic acceleration and inflation continues to... Uh, I ought to be able to read. Lift interest rates. That's what I said. Okay. So let's tie. Man, you know what? I'm going to go to inflation next because I'm going to try and tie that all together with bonds to see so you can see that there's some, how would I say, correlation to all of this stuff. Now, when an economy is held back and then released, 
you're going to see some inflation. I mean, you have to. Uh, in the 70s, Nixon, uh, uh, the inflation was starting to pick up. And it basically, they put the screws down on inflation for a few months. And when they took the uh, proverbial uh, <laughs> restrictions off, oh, oh, buddy, it took off like a scalded dog. And, uh, for example, in, in 1946, the rate of inflation after World War II, when things were all controlled, uh, the inflation rate was 8.3. In 47, it was 14.4. So, you know, I'm not expecting anything remotely close to that, but somewhat higher inflation is only natural after being in jail after all that time. And I think we can agree, well, at least it's my opinion, I'll say that, that the U.S. economy is definitely healing faster than expected, while the Congress and administration seem to be intent on pouring at least one more massive government spending stimulus into the system. And they're doing this even though the pandemic is declining and a double-dip recession is, I would say, highly remote. This $1.9 trillion spending bill is uh, economic insanity. Uh, you know, the economy is recovering. More states are opening as the vaccine rolls out. $1.9 trillion is trying to rescue a drowning man by putting a hose in his mouth. Now, economist Dr. Ed Yardini wrote this, and I'm quoting, The policymakers have been bragging lately that they're able to boost economic growth while keeping a lid on inflation and containing financial imbalances. Their recent self-assured statements should be thought of as potentially contrary indicators. He's so polite. Too much of a good thing is often too much, the doc wrote. The economy is hot and will get hotter with the bonfire of added fiscal and monetary insanities, unquote. Now, companies that uh, report that demand is healthy, the inability of supply to meet that demand is also causing price pressures to build. Case in point, the prices paid index in February reached the highest reading in more than a decade all 18 industries reported increased prices for raw materials. So in total, 48 commodities were reported up. Commodities, you know, that's basic stuff. Iron, wood, you pick anything that's required to build stuff, that's your pretty much your commodity. In addition to, of course, energy and uh, food items and what have you. But as far as the uh, industrial commodities are concerned... All 48 are reported up, and they're going to continue up because there's going to be a higher demand. And if there's a higher demand and uh, there isn't a good supply, what happens to prices? They go up. And if prices go up, you might get some inflation. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, 42% inflation. That's not the point. But it will be higher. That I think we can pretty much be sure of. Now, companies report that demand is healthy. We're having a problem with supply to meet the demand. And so that will cause price pressures on goods to go, it cause them to go higher. Now, this is the big risk for these next couple of years is a surge of inflation. It's larger than anything we've experienced in the past couple of decades, which is probably not too hard to do since we haven't really had any. Now, a number of firms are projecting two and a half percent CPI, consumer price index inflation for this year. As the government's measure of housing rents holds the top-line inflation number down. But 
commodity prices generally are likely to continue rising and overall inflation will as well into 2022 and beyond. You know, there's an old saying, when the Fed isn't worried about inflation, perhaps the market should be. Now, don't expect a faster pace of inflation to mean monetary policy will be tightening anytime soon. That was one of the things that Mr. Powell threw water on the market on last Wednesday. He's saying, eh, not so fast. He said the Fed is perfectly fine with inflation exceeding the 2% target for a while to make up for previous years when it fell short of that. Now, those who are concerned about inflation increasing faster than the Fed anticipates are focusing on the rapid increase in the M2 measure of money supply. Now, M2, which is nominal, excuse me, is cash and checking deposits, saving deposits, money market securities, mutual funds, and other time deposits. So it's pretty much all the liquid cash that's floating around out there. Now, the M2 is up about 25% from a year ago. That's the fastest growth on record. And that's the key difference between uh, the current situation and the situation after uh, 08 and 09. <clears throat> so let me give you a for instance of how inflation works or is or what have you. Uh, these are uh, the proverbial real data. 30 years ago, so this is within uh, a particular, shall we say, a uh, retirement lifetime for sure. 30 years ago, a stamp was 25 cents, a gallon of gas, 97 cents, and an average new car, 15350 Okay, Same items in today's numbers, a stamp, 55 cents, gallon of gas depends on where you live but let's call it 275 and the average price of a new car a mere forty thousand dollars that's due primarily to the current focus on <clears throat> excuse me suvs and lart and trucks and things like that but nonetheless it's up significantly and and you know most people don't know it because the what happens with inflation is that it it's just insidious it just keeps growing up you know it's like uh Inflation is everything costs more every year, okay? And that's what you have to plan for in your long-term investing. So now let's, speaking of long-term investing, let's relate that to bonds. Because a lot of folks have accepted a conventional wisdom that as you get closer to retirement or in retirement, the best thing to do, and that's in quotes, is to put your money into safe, secure things. Now, conventional wisdom has it that safe and secure translates into bonds, CDs, uh, uh, interest rate annuities, those kinds of things. But they aren't. That's not a good idea. And inflation is one reason for that. Now, <clears throat> let's see if we can uh, kind of put a little more, uh, how would I say, flesh on these bones. You know, I know it's not exciting to talk about bonds when you got a bull market going on, but they're going to matter eventually. And, you know, this is uh, the forewarned is forearmed kind of thing. So you know, I don't know if we're in the midst of a rising rate environment or this is just like another head fake uh, because almost as long as I've been in the business and certainly over the last 20 years, folks have been predicting higher interest rates and all they've done is continue to fall. So. The 10-year closed yesterday at 1.56. In 2020, 
March 2020, the all-time low for the 10-year was one-half of 1%, 0.50. Then again, the highest was like 13.7 in 1982. And there have been these 10-year bonds since 1790, so I'd say that's a pretty long track record. And we just recently hit the all-time low. <laughs> yeah, not exactly a, a typical market. So over the past week, that's from a week ago Friday to yesterday, the daily closing price of the 10-year Treasury incle- increased by exactly 16 basis points. Now, one basis point, as you may recall from earlier, equals one one-hundredth of one percent. So, 16 basis points equals 1.6%. That's not very much. But it's the trend, you see. It's what these guys are afraid of is that this is just the beginning. And so we want to get out of Dodge before the rates go up. Now, they're thinking for some reason that these things are going to go straight up day after tomorrow. And oh, my goodness, uh, interest rates typically don't move that way. Okay. You know, bond investors have had it really easy for the past 40 years or so. But from the current levels of interest rates, things will be much more challenging going forward because yields go inverse of prices. What that means is, is that if you have bonds now of whatever kind, municipal, corporate, government, whatever, um, they all trade the same. They all trade relative to prevailing interest rates. Uh, and, you know, if you have bonds, say you bought a bond today, a, a new issue, you would typically pay 100 cents on the dollar for whatever that rate was. Let's call it 2% just for example. Now, six months from now, and this is really not a, a good example, but just to help put it in context, there's a similar bond, it's maybe even issued by the same folks, and they put it out at 2.5% because interest rates have gone up. Well, now a new investor comes to the market and says, hmm, I can buy this old bond at 2% or I can buy this new bond at 2.5%. Usually folks will defer to the 2.5% to get the max return. What happens with your existing bond, that 2% bond, is that it drops in price so that it's yield to maturity, in other words, it's appreciation back to par plus whatever interest, would equal around 2.5%. But you, if you went to sell that bond, why would I pay more for a bond that gives me less return, you see? And so this goes pretty much across the board. And that's been going totally opposite in the last 40 years. Uh, because, again, uh, in 1981, the tenure was 13.7, and 2020 was a half a percent. And with those yields and prices being inverse, folks over this period of time have come to believe, feel, uh, that these bonds are totally safe. You can't lose money, etc., etc., etc. Well, that horse is out of the barn. And and again, the reason for the current rise in rates could be that. You know, pricing in higher growth prospects, and the market isn't all-knowing. And I can tell you, based on personal experience, that markets do rise, stock markets do rise when rates are higher than where they are now. It's just that, again, most people have no familiarity with how to operate in this kind of environment. Now, a guy named Warren Buffett, uh, he puts out an annual letter to shareholders, 
And uh, <laughs> guess what? In my infinite ability to not keep track of time, um, it looks as if I might have to wait a couple seconds to share this with you and uh, force you to come back after the break. But um, he said, and, he, and this is from his annual shareholder letter, bonds are not the place to be these days. If you want to know why uh, Warren Buffett thinks that, he said bonds are not the place to be these days. Now, and he went, and this was in his letter to shareholders, and I'm quoting: "Can you believe that the income recently available from a 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, and that yield was at 0.93 percent at the end of last year, had fallen 94 percent from the yield available in September 1981?" In certain large and important countries, such as Germany and Japan, investors get a negative return on trillions of dollars of sovereign debt. Fixed-income investors worldwide, whether pension funds, insurance companies, or retirees, face a bleak future, unquote. Now, again, as I said earlier, if rates fall, the long-term bonds will perform better than short-term bonds because all things else being equal, the longer duration gets you a bigger bang for your buck. But when rates go the other way and you're saying, jeepers, I got to get out as far as I can get the highest rate. If you've ever played crack the whip, when you do that, you're the guy at the end of the line because the further out in time you go with a bond, the more you are suspect or how would I say, eligible for uh, a bad result when rates turn higher because you have more, you know, you've got more risk. You've got 20 or 30 years worth of risk. Yeah, you're going to get whacked. You know, um, and again, in, let's see, long-term government bonds have had, now this is something I'll bet most folks aren't aware of, have had the same number of double-digit drawdowns as the S&P 500 over the last 40 years. That includes losses of 23%, 15%, 18%, and 22%. Whoa. So much for the safe thing. And again, you can, see, the thing about bonds, you continue to get your interest. But if you need to sell all or part, you won't necessarily get your money back. I mean, that's a market risk. Now, those are enormous losses for what, is really little benefit. And I think it's safe to say investors are going to experience much more volatility in long-term bonds in the years ahead. And you won't be exactly being compensated for that increased volatility with these in, uh, interest levels. Paul Singer, a mega investor, uh, says uh, he calls these bonds a return-free risk. And I'm quoting from him. Uh, he said, a fixed income investors worldwide face a bleak future. He's share, he's sharing the same thing that uh, Mr. Buffett had to say. He said, every investor has their own appetite for risk, but long-term government bonds are a buyer beware situation today. If you must be in bonds for whatever reason you think it is, you know, a less than 10-year maturity is probably good because while you won't get, I mean, you will be subject to the opposite action of the interest rates and the prices, it won't be as much as if you're in a longer-term bond. So, <laughs> excuse me. You know, the three the three top bond mutual funds by returns last year, now this is according to Morningstar, who tracks all this stuff, were all heavily invested in treasuries. They gained about 25% total return, so that's price plus interest, 
That, yeah, okay, that made sense. Now, this year, the three funds ha- are now at the bottom of the rankings with losses as high as 15%. Well, it, two lessons here. Number one, never buy the, the fund that was the best performer last year because this is usually what happens no matter what they're invested in. And it does give you an indication of the opposite effect of rising interest rates on bond prices. So, it, it, And here's another point. Inflation is like kryptonite to bond. You know, on one hand, it eats away at the capital of bonds as the rising rates attempt to keep up with price pressures as price increases push down the current yields. And this is why this is a really bad idea to have the majority of your money in long-term money in bonds. The only thing that's for sure about bonds is that, again, you get your interest. And hopefully you'll get it back at maturity, your principal. But you have risk in the interim, just like everything else. And the biggest risk you have is purchasing power risk. Your ability to buy the same amount of stuff when your money comes back as it does now. Now, you know, future payments you get from bonds are worth less in a real sense in an inflationary environment, which is pretty much every day. So, again, the the income amounts are the same, but what they buy won't be. Now, and if rates do increase in a meaningful way, <clears throat> excuse me, long-term governments as well as corporate muni issues will probably underperform the five and ten-year intermediate bonds uh, for the reasons I just mentioned earlier, because they're shorter term. In long-term, <clears throat> excuse me, long-term government bonds are almost assuredly going to have to a much bumpier ride with as many or more double-digit corrections as the stock market over the next ten years. So. Could rising rates lead to a stock market crash? Well, yeah, sure, it's possible. Wind's a big unknown. Should the market care if interest rates are rising for the right reason? Well, probably not because it's made money. The markets have made money in much higher interest rate periods. I can personally attest to that. So here's a challenge. While I do think it's possible, outside possibility, that higher rates could take down growth stocks if enough people believe it, You know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you get enough media stories that higher rates are bad for growth stocks, well, (laughs) everybody's trying to get out of the pool at the same time. That doesn't help your prices. It helps get them pushed even further, lower. So do we know, again, at what level rates would potentially cause a crash? I sure don't. The, The problem with the current rate environment, again, is that we've never experienced rates this low before. And, you know, the the bottom line is that bonds compete with stocks as an investment and bonds are starting to become just a little bit more attractive, which has some downward pressure on some price, on some stocks. But remember, the market is a discounting mechanism. It's a way to try and figure out what a future stream of cash flow or earnings is worth today. Higher rates lower the present value of expected cash flow, which means many investors may look to wind up paying less for their stocks. So let's see, we got a few minutes. Let me see if I can get some closing words here. Well, sector rotation is the big deal here. It is the lifeblood of any bull market. Rolling away from the big name tech stocks into these other stocks that haven't done so well, Rates in oil are going up, not down like they have been. International's leading U.S., not the other way around like it's been for so long. The sector that does absolutely best when rates start rising, financials. 
uh, sectors that tend to do worse. The ones that have done well, quite frankly, heretofore, consumer staples, healthcare, utilities, and some REITs. You know, financials represent one of the Dow's largest weightings. Now, the NASDAQ, again, where the techs live, they don't even have any. And euro indices are heavy into cars and banks. So as, uh, again, interest rates come up, that'll help those indices because of the heavy concentration of banks. Now, I think I've gotten pretty good over the years at tracking sentiment. And, and, and tech has become just like everybody else today. It's not the uh, uh, hallowed leader as it has been. Um, the different stuff is energy and financials, you know, and they're telling people to diversify by buying Chevron and a bank. <laughs> well, as odd as it sounds, that's what's actually happening. The old laggards, they're the new leaders. And, you know, uh, so what should investors do? Uh, and analysts are buy, uh, urging them to buy shares of companies poised to benefit from a near-term surge in the economy. Known as cyclicals, these kinds of stocks, again, include banks, energy companies. These are profit companies whose profits tend to rise in periods of faster growth, higher interest rates, and rising prices. And they're precisely the parts of the market have done so well this year. The S&P energy stocks are in, in that sector. They're up 30% so far this year. And the financials up more than 14%. Looks as if folks are finally getting to turn their uh, heads around, as it were. Now, remember, investing isn't the study of finance. It's the study of how people behave with their money. And Optimism is your best long-term mindset. It requires a certain level of believing things that can't be verified, either because you don't have the skills to verify them, nobody knows everything, or because something hasn't happened yet, you will think in the future. Now, it's going to take getting back to normal, getting back to work to fully recover from the wounds of last year. But let me close with the words of Warren Buffett again from his uh, shareholder letter. In its brief 232 years of existence, there's never been an incubator for unleashing human potential like America. Our unwavering conclusion, never bet against America. I'll take that. And never bet against the Zags either. Monday night, they're going to be there. All right, folks. Have a great week. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next Saturday at 9 with more market news. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.